Welcome to the Heroes of Reality podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Hello, young adventurers. Dylan here. And on today's podcast, I have a very special guest. Her name is Amy Jo Kim. She is uh, an amazing, world-renowned game designer, product designer. Uh, she got uh, she was part of the early teams of rock bands, The Sims, Netflix, Fashion Culture, Ultima Online, Happify, and many other numerous start- uh, startups. She's also the um, best-selling author of Game Thinking, and she teaches online courses to help people find their product market fit fast. And so some of her skills include game design, product design, social systems design, UI design, and many more things. And so I am very excited to talk to her all about game design, product design, and finding the right fit and her personal journey. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome Amy Jo Kim. It's great to be here. It's great to have you, Amy Jo. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Yeah. So I've been I've been following you for a while. Um, I first uh, fell in love with your work through reading Game Thinking. Um, I thought it was an amazing blend of taking the the gamification tactics, tools, system strength, and bringing that into the the product world, and and making it your own. It was it was very inspirational. So I followed your your journey since then. Um, I would love to learn um, a little bit about how you kind of came up with the the game thinking process and 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 what what got you from the the game space into the product space so game thinking came out of all the work that i did bringing products to life um some things worked some things didn't and quite a few things that were common to the most um surprising hits i worked on were um counterintuitive to a lot of other advice out there. So that's really where it came from. And I've worked both in games and products for 20 years. So it's not really that I went from one space to the other, but that I simultaneously lived in both. Mm, so you, because you're in both spaces, you could see both perspectives and being able to do that. It was just, a, it was a natural blending the way that you're, you're able to take in that data. Right. Yeah, that's great. So uh, with, um, do you want to describe just a little bit about the the game thinking book and the game thinking process? I could. I'd actually love to hear you describe it, Dylan, because one thing you didn't mention is that you've been through our certification training program, which is how we really met. Yes. And so, I... so that's a big part of why I'm here, because we know each other quite well through that. And um, I could do that, but um, I would like you to share, you know, I'm sure you've shared it before, but sometime the impact it had on you and how you would describe the process as you learned it, because that's actually, I can jump in afterwards, but I'd love to hear that because everybody, language is so important. People use different language sometimes to understand the same thing. Sure. Uh, uh, mental models is super important. Um, you know, one of the things I've learned from you. Yeah. So the way that I actually got connected a, a while back is I was actually uh, talking with Jesse Shell, and I was talking to him about a product that I was building and developing. And I was and I was talking to him saying, you know, I'm trying to figure out this thing. It's that's not quite a game. It's but it is a it's an application that I'm building using the the Unity game engine. You know, what would you recommend? What do you think you should do? And he goes, Oh, the Amy Joe Kent here sent me your information. So I went across. 
and I, I read your book and I fell in love with that. And I said, this is, this is amazing. And then uh, later on um, when, when COVID hit, we had, there was like, okay, great. We have, we have, everyone's going from home. This is a, an at home time challenge. And so what I did is I, I looked at my personal avatars and one of the areas that I looked at was, was product design. And I was like, well, who's the best that I know in the space? And you came top to mind and you were coming out with a, a multi-month bootcamp uh, to go through on, on leveling up the product design. And so I signed up for that to kind of get that um, more intimate experience because you can read a book and, and get that one level of, of understanding, but it's another thing to actually go through an immersive boot camp with other product designers, game designers, uh, people in the education space. And so as I was going through that, uh, I guess my interpretation of that would be it takes you it it takes the best elements of agile starting development agile processes it takes gamification methodologies and also takes kind of this this framework for how to lead someone through their own uh, how to lead a user or a player uh, through a mastery path so you you can go through the process by saying okay how do I break down other components of other products to reverse engineer their processes? How do I then take my own thoughts and designs and be able to lay that down on a framework and a system that I could lead someone through a, a framework and a system in a, in a path that allows me to guide someone through it so to make sure that we have clear mental model alignment? Because some of the times, as you very much know, is, is that when you describe to someone, oh, um, imagine an elephant. And you're like, oh, I got that. But imagine a pink elephant. Okay. Well, imagine a pink elephant with polka dots that are standing on its high heels that looks like a T-Rex. Okay. So we're getting closer and closer to that metal model, metal model, mental model alignment. And so for me, it was it was it was an amazing use to not only see the the tools and the tactics that were inside the book, but being able to apply that um, in my own products and the own things that I've been developing and be able to go in depth with that process. So that was that's a bit of my explanation on it. How'd I do? Yeah, well, it's really interesting to hear your takeaways. I always, I love that. So you mm. touched on, there's a few things about game thinking that go beyond familiar uh, methodologies. And it's why Jesse, who I've worked with repeatedly, um, pointed me at, pointed you at the this methodology, mm. which is um, realizing that an experience that you're delivering to your customer over time will be experienced by them over time. Mm -hmm. And they don't really care about your features and they really don't care about your layout and they don't care about all these cool ideas you have of what's gonna be in your product. They care about the experience you're gonna deliver over time. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to test that without building something. Mm -hmm. What a big part of what game thinking adds to design thinking, lean startup methods, agile methods, and all of that is a backbone framework for designing your customer's journey over time and then testing it in a low fidelity way that forces you to get very clear about your mental model. So you're testing the mental model, but you're also using that as a forcing function to have your whole team align around what is the journey we're delivering. And one of the most powerful things, especially for larger companies, but startups as well, is that being able to have an artifact that you're developing that communicates your customer journey at a high level aligns 
everybody because often you get people that are optimizing onboarding and other mm -hmm. people are optimizing other things. And those can really, if they're not tightly, tightly aligned, you just have siloization and a lot of problems. And I've seen that again and again and again, and I've helped many, many startups untangle that. And part of how you do it is to find ways to um, put down your assumptions about what that experience is going to be in a form that your customer can understand and give you feedback on that you're not attached to. Uh, and so along with the learning loop, which is a part of that model for driving habits and retention, and then superfans, which is a, um, a very specific uh, research technique that speeds you up and improves your research um, efforts. Those things together really form the core of game thinking. We're about to run another cohort. We're just getting done with... Um, the cohort after years that we've run for certification. Mm -hmm. And we do have a boot camp, but that's a five-day short-term crash course. Certification masterclass is really a masterclass. It's a, it's a six-month experience. Um, it was four months mm -hmm. when you did it, and we found mm -hmm. that people really wanted more, so we extended it to six months. And we're just fin finishing up a cohort and starting another one. One of the people in it got funded during the cohort. Oh, that's awesome. Um, part, using some of the techniques, especially the super fan technique. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it's really exciting. So that program is continuing to grow. And the thing that I find is during COVID, you mentioned COVID. Mm -hmm. During COVID, a lot of people, some people jobs, a lot of people changed their jobs. Some people's businesses took off. Some people's businesses dried up. A lot of people pivoted. There's a lot of rethinking, a lot of do you know, a lot of people in jobs, maybe they didn't like that were comfortable or have a lot of time to think about that. So there's a lot of um, rethinking of what people want to do. What I found is that so much of what people seek and what they need to be able to do and the skills that let you get a job anywhere and make you highly desirable as somebody who you know, would get hired like you to help out with something, to build something, or who would get hired in a company are being able to work really effectively with cross-functional teams. Yeah. And there's so much to unpack with that. But one of the things I want to touch on is what do you think was the primary reason extending it from four months to six months? Because I know there's a lot to, to fit in there. I know that. Um... Yeah. So the primary, there's two primary reasons. Mm -hmm. One is, um, Six months gives you the ability to have holiday breaks, to mm. have people dip in and out and not feel guilty. Um, at the end of four months, the people that were really rocking and rolling would have really benefited from another month or two. Yourself, Chris, mm. who re you remember was on his yep. project. Um, you got, you know, all the way through all the steps, which was great, but a huge part of the value Mm -hmm. is once you've gone through the basic three main sprints, yeah. discovery, design, and validation, being able to then iterate and feedback what you learned during validation and create a real product brief that captures what you learned, which is what the folks are doing now, um, 
is a, a huge part of what actually makes this stuff work in the real world is mm. getting that, that artifact at the end. And so we wanted to extend it so people could get that artifact and, you know, learn what they had to learn. And we also, like, we ran October through uh, March and just really wanted to take some time off over the holidays. Yeah. And we're going to run it April through September. And we want to take, you know, some time off in August and be able to do that. So, yeah, so so now it's a two six-month cohorts a year. And then we have other programs that are shorter. We have our boot camp and we have our accelerator, which is, um, this year has been very popular, which is for teams who want to do something in two to three months and want to work more intensely. So, you know, we've really evolved our business partly through the pandemic to hone in on what do people need? Like there's a way for me, it's easier for me to run shorter programs. It's easier to run three or four months than six months, but six months really gives people what they need and I can make it work. And there's like, you know, it's, um, and it's also more differentiated in that way from the boot camp. Yeah. You know, it's, um, uh, so yeah, so we are, uh, we opened applications last week. I think we've got like 22 applications. We'll see, you know, how it plays out. But, um, if anyone is here right now, um, at gamethinking.io slash programs, you can find our certification program. We're currently accepting applications and they'll close on March 15th. So, you know, it's, uh, it's really exciting. Uh, some of our graduates, I, it's, I'll give you a something incredibly mm -hmm. exciting. Well, one, I got to work with you. I got to pull mm -hmm. you in mm -hmm. to help out with a uh, continuous glucose monitoring project, which is coming to a close. And by the way, Dylan, mm -hmm. a great update on that. Oh, awesome. But that was awesome because I got to pull you and Tiago, another mm -hmm. graduate in. And then a bunch of the Game Thinking Asia folks um, are going, are now, I've hooked them up with another graduate of certification from our Africa cohort, you met our Africa friends in your cohort, mm -hmm. right? So yep. their boss has a new project. And so I'm matchmaking him with uh, folks that we've trained up in our certification program in Game Thinking Asia. And these folks have been through it twice. The other thing I'm seeing is that like the people that learn it, they often will go through it twice. Like you learn a lot mm -hmm. more, go you know, working on this project. Yeah, And I really like to be able to have people that level up and then level up more. And now I can send business their way. And so that's really, that flywheel is really starting to happen in that community, um, sending business. And some of the business is actually coming from people in, in the certification community, hiring other people, you know, with touching base with me, but really taking me out of the mix and just using the tools and the framework because they know it works to work together and do something that um, goes beyond what I could do. And I just can't even tell you how exciting that is. It is, it's an, it's an awesome ecosystem to go from, you know, inspiration with, you know, here's a book, read the book right. to actually being a part of the community. Cause as you know, if you want to go fast, go by yourself. If you want to go far, go with the team. 
So being able to come into a community, level up and be surrounded by uh, like-minded peers in the space, and then and then being able to reflect to each other and kind of you know washing hands with each other through this process so that as you level up, you can you can get other perspectives because you hear someone else pitch their product, you can hear them design it, describe it, all that. And then and then it gives you insights to, to your own self, your own descriptions, your own processes, which is incredibly valuable. I didn't mention the project that we were working on because I didn't know how what was under NDA or protections or any of that type of stuff. So I was like, no, I'm gonna let you bring that all up that as it comes in. Um, the, uh, and what is incredible about yeah the 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 ecosystem of that is you you do see that that inspiration of of people passing alongs and learning insights and tips and tricks and being the help and support each other. Um, I, I know that one of the specialties you have is social systems design is actually creating these types of environments that that really uh, is a flywheel of of bringing in like a mastery path. I believe that there was um, one of the mastery paths I remember. I think it was in the book was talking about was talking about going into actually summer camp. And the first thing a part of summer camp when you come in is, you know, I'm a I'm I'm a student just coming to summer camp. And then what are those what are those learning behavior patterns of maybe trying out these these exercises or practicing swimming or getting your badges and all that stuff. But as you level up through that master badge, you become a trainer and then eventually you 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 become, you know, a person that that is there when the when the new group of kids come in, you are now the master teaching other people how to go through that process. That I, I believe that was from the book. Um Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, like the, have you integrated those types of systems or how have you integrated those types of social systems design um, into your own um, game thinking community? Well, those are just one of many type of social system. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, what you're saying is exactly the story I just told, which is mm -hmm. a big part of how I've integrated that is creating um, teaching and job opportunities within the ecosystem for people that have been through the initial trainings and those mm -hmm. are level up opportunities so for example some of them are you know hey you can help out with this project some of them are here's a client you know i bless you see if you can make that work some of them are um here's an example so the game thinking asia people mm -hmm. there's i think five people now that are within Game Thinking Asia that have been trained up in the Southeast Asia region. And so we now have a monthly meetup in our Game Thinking Hub, which is the free community. We also have a pay community for the academy just for people that are you know, going through it that's much more intimate. But we have a free community for everybody um, and everybody that's interested that behaves well. And we now have a cycle of monthly meetups, which we promote, we give them a space for it. Mm -hmm. You know, they can bring their own clients and interested people in. And we, we're committed to doing that every month and that's a showcase for them. Mm -hmm. So that's a good example of in the summer camp model, how you can't just kind of hope that it happens. You have to create situations for it. And then, you know, the the client I brought you in on mm. was a client that in some circumstances might not have made sense for us, but because I was able to provide this learning experience for uh, trained coaches, that client, it, the whole thing worked so much better. Yeah. And so um, I think there's a lesson for everybody who wants to create that, which is that... Um, 
one, you have to run experiments. Like I've tried some things that didn't really catch on that seem like great ideas. You have to find people that want to be leaders. You can't create, like you have to leave room for other leaders. You can't mm -hmm. like be in the the spotlight all the time, every moment. You really have to find ways to shine a spotlight on the other leaders and support them in a way that makes sense for them that they're ready for. And that's like win-win. Because I've also had people in my programs, not now, not the people that are active before, that really wanted to do self-promotional stuff in our community that was aggressively un uncomfortable for people. Mm -hmm. And I had to manage that. And that was, you know, and so part of what you also have to do as a leader is set a tone, set a culture. And if something is outside of it, show people that that's not going to be tolerated. There was few years ago. It was before I did certification, but I still had a mm. master class and mm. that was before, but it wasn't nearly as in depth. And there was somebody who liked it and took the master class, but was a gamification consultant and just started going around and spamming individual people who looked like they worked for companies with his contact about how they really need a game, like just very, very aggressive, you know, and our community has busy people at the director level and higher of, you know, big brands. It's like, you don't expect you're going to go there and get spammed by some unknown person, right? So that really made me realize, one, I actually turned on a filter in the community. You can't just like join, you have mm -hmm. to get approved. Yeah. And I also hired a community manager. And so that someone on it and responsible for it and catching it. And if it's tricky, brings it to me. So things don't, so I don't even have to worry about it. But, you know, one of the biggest challenges with running communities is keeping them going, not really getting them started. And it's real work. You know, you have to decide how much work it's going to be and who's going to do it. Um, I've had community managers that I lifted up as volunteers from my clan. Mm -hmm. And I've decided I'd rather have a paid community manager because volunteers get busy. Yeah. You know, and it's like, you yeah. kind of can't blame them, but that was my own learning journey. I do have a lot of roles. I'm a number of volunteers have run events. There was a, a woman who really wanted to learn to, she's very shy and she wanted to be able to run gaming events and we supported her and our discord and she ran a few gaming events and got a lot. She also got a job. She got like really busy because she got a job again while she was studying game thinking, but like things like that, you know, with communities, um, you can't please everybody, you, mm -hmm. you know, you have to find and understand who you're for and who you're not, because you'll just be inundated with way too many conflicting, uh, requests, um, if you don't and really, um, decide, you know, if it's a community of personality, which many communities are, and they're very successful and really built around a core personality and access to that core personality, or if it's a community of, learning and, um, you know, spotlighting, rising, rising talent. Mm. Right. And I've made a decision to spotlight and support rising talent as well as provide the anchor, you know, with me yeah. and Scott, my partner and the VIPs that we bring in, which create the anchor, but then lots of spotlight rising talent but you have to work at it. Like, you know, yeah, I had to like do a lot to set up that commitment to get, you know, do the monthly meetups for game thinking Asian, get it all worked out, but it's rolling and it's amazing. It's exciting. That flywheel is, is, is 
one, super easy to start. Continuing the thing, keeping it moving, keeping that consistent energy over time is such a challenge, especially you're talking about having it take on a life of its own. Being able to step away and let that energy roll is very, very difficult unless you know there's some sort of mechanics or designs that people are going in for the actual process itself like i'm here for the game not necessarily for the game designer per se and and being able to actually create that rolling energy and create mods or gatekeepers or mod you know moderators that 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 enforce that type of like-minded behavior is a is a is an incredible challenge to run a community of virtual reality developers and all that fun stuff and there's been times where i spin it up quickly get distracted, things go on, it slows down, you spin it up again, and being able to keep that going is is an incredible challenge unless there's unless there's something that is a perpetuating system, a positive feedback loop that allows it to keep going. With the with the mods, how do you set standards and reinforce standards with those types of mods to be able to, I know you said pain, which is absolutely true. There's kind of that, you know, if you do work for free, then there's no accountability and it goes back and forth and it drops. But do you, do you set a set of system in place initially say, here's, here's what my expectations are with you. And do you do occasionally check in with them? How do you keep the fly with them, with the mods moving along? Well, so we have weekly meeting with the community manager and mm -hmm. then mods can ask her questions. Um, we are shifting that actually, uh, a little bit, uh, in the coming weeks, we are, uh, shifting our definition of community manager and broadening out a little to include more live events because live events are becoming more and more part of our deal. Um, so with like the game thinking Asia mods, um, we had a meeting or two and we're just completely on the same page in terms of, um, everything else in those communities, there really hasn't uh, been any issues that had to get slapped down because the, the well, so the way we're dealing with it with the mods is that it's mostly live events. Like there's some stuff that happens, but there's live events and follow up and then like leading up to it is largely mm -hmm. what's going on. So, um, you know, I've given them some training around the live events, but they're, uh, you know, they don't need a lot of feedback or training because it's not like they're moderating an active message board, right? Um, it's a, just a different thing. The other thing is having a the our community manager, um, Ruby, shout out to Ruby, um, set up a onboarding that does a lot to set the right tone. So one of the things that we've struggled with is getting the onboarding right for communities given platforms, et cetera. In our free community, we're using Mighty Networks, which is great for that top of funnel, mm -hmm. you know, uh, use. And you can set up a sequence of little posts and questions that get people in the right frame. And you can show them what's expected in the community and give them, you know, high level community expectations during onboarding. We haven't had problems. I mean, and if we have, Ruby's taking care of them like that. But I think awesome. that like the problems we had before was because we weren't putting it in your face what the issues are. And what we say is, you know, this is not a place for solicitation. If you want to do that, we have help wanted and help offered. And we mm. have a, so one of the other things we do, and this is a classic community management technique, create, if there's a certain kind of activity that might be really awkward and bad, but like some people might want to engage in it and it would be good, put it in its own place, give it a topic, give it an area. 
if people want, you know, that's why like porn and guns had their own topics on various like sites, right? Yeah. So um, we have a place called Help Wanted and Help Offered. And if you, if you are that guy, that gamification guy who wants to say, I offer these services, it's like right over here, sir. Just, instead of slap a hand, it's like right over here. And then people can opt in or opt out of that. But now you know where to go. And if you're looking for services, you know where to go. So setting up the right onboarding, having a, you know, a pay community manager whose job it is to make sure these things. And then she also reaches out and greets people. We have an opening question. What are you working on? What are you looking for help with? We engage with that. The community manager leads that. All of that sets a tone. Mm -hmm. And um, so I haven't had, you know, we did do a lot of, you know, working with the, our community manager to get all that set up. But now that it's set up, it's a flywheel. And everybody who joins goes to the same onboarding. And so um, I think that's probably a best practice is you can really reduce bad behavior and reduce the load on your mods by being super clear about the purpose of the community mm. and the kind of things that you that you that people can say and getting really 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 specific about do say this don't say this blah 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 that's what people say to cover their ass when stuff has happened what you really mm -hmm. want to do is be an example and be clear about the purpose because the wider open the purpose of your community the more problems you're going to have because people are going to read into it what they want the purpose to be and then they'll complain when it's not that so i've learned that the answer to many questions is this might not be the community for you or, mm. um, you know, uh, exactly that, or please take that over here or, you know, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't have to be for everybody. That that's Love. a huge issue. Mm. Yeah. What I like about that, there's several things you mentioned that was really critical in there. One pre-framing, uh, otherwise known as an indoctrination se sequence. You're, you're, you're having people come in and saying, Here's what this community is about. Here's what we stand about. Here's what it's good for. We understand that that there is not only the the selfless, you know, support the community, support everybody, be your best, you know, help them. But there's also the selfish side of you. Do you want to self promote? Do you want to, you know, whatever the things that you naturally do? Great. Yes, and come with me over here. That yes and sequence, which I have a spot for you. Please come over here, and it allows them to fill that other side of the of the, the humanistic needs of shameless self-promotions, whatever that be, but just have a place for that so that it feels like they can versus just saying, we don't do that, that's completely unacceptable. At the same time, there are some edge cases that you're saying, here are the boundaries of the community and this is outside the bounds of the community. If you do X, Y, and Z, then this may not be the, the community for you, which again, it gives them the freedom and saying, here's what you stand for. And 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 if you cross that, that's that's fine. But then you can just you can do that somewhere else, which is it's it's really it's really interesting to see the way you it seemingly caught those types of things and uh, probably through experience and lessons learned and many kind of years of experience and lots of mistakes. I mean, honestly, <laughs> like so many mistakes. But it's true. And then just role modeling, like what kind of hmm. what what's happening here? What gets liked? What gets featured? You know, like all of that communicates more than words ever could. So, mm. um, you know, I really did learn the hard way that the wider open you are, the worse it is. People will, you know, just project what they want and you start scrambling because you think you have to serve your community members. The other thing is, I think it's incredible. 
being clear about the purpose of the community and not pretending something is being done out of pure altruism mm -hmm. is incredibly important. I think mm -hmm. that community is very squishy and emotional and all kinds of people say, oh, I'm, you know, especially, you know, like VCs or this or that. I'm doing this out of the goodness of my heart. No, you're not. Everybody has a, if you aren't, let me put it this way. If you aren't doing it because you're deeply getting something out of it, then you're not going to be able to sustain it. You're not, you're doing a disservice to everybody that you invited in. Yeah. I think that there is no shame. In fact, there, it, there's no shame in being very clear about the purpose of this community. And, and, you know, if you sell a product, it's like this community is the community for people who want to learn about this product. Nothing wrong with that. People are like, I want to learn about regular stuff. Great. <laughs> you know, um, or this community, in my case, this community is for everyone who wants to learn about game thinking and wants to be connected to that community. You will also be the first to learn about product launches and you'll get insider discounts. That's mm. And it's absolutely top of funnel for products. 90% mm. of the people in that community will probably never buy a product from me. And I've checked with other creators too, and that's fine because the ones who do will do it they'll be thrilled and they'll tell their friends, which we get so much word of mouth. So, you know, we wrestled with whether it was worth it because mm. it's a lot of work. We're cycling, you know, that's the thing. If you pretend, oh, I'm just going to, it's fun. I'm going to do it out of goodness. You know, maybe it's worth it for you because you're learning to be a community leader. Maybe you're building your knowledge base. A lot of people do it. Maybe you are doing it instead of being in Toastmasters as somebody would have done 20 years ago to build your public speaking. There's a lot of reasons people do things. Mm -hmm. And I think it's incredibly powerful to be upfront with yourself and with your community about why you're doing it, which doesn't mean you're hard selling all the time. Mm -hmm. But I think it, it will give you the seed of the thing that's going to make it sustainable for you. The sustainability is really powerful. It reminds me of a book, I think, called Give and Take by Adam Grant that talks about, like, you if you if you continuously give and you don't ever fill your cup up, you're going to your cup's going to empty out and there's going to be nothing left to give. And then you're going to you're going to deplete outwards. You need to find a way to replenish the cup and find some sort of uh, lack of a better term, selfish refilling of your cup otherwise you 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 can you can sprint at the beginning but then you there's nothing that will sustain you to continue on um internally um and 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 i think as you go through the process of being a part of the community those intrinsic values um change right what starts you is i know nothing in the space and i'm just hungry to learn versus i'm a master in the space and i'm giving back there are two two different sets of needs and desires and ways to fill the cup back up. And I would be curious to, to learn a little bit about, um, have you seen, I'm sure you have, but the, the identity journey of a designer that they go through the process with you and going through the process of, um, I want to design, but I, I don't know how to design. I'm not a designer all the way to having that, that competence, of yes, I am. I am. I am an expert in the space. And have you have you seen that emotional journey as people go through that? And what are the telltale cross uh, thresholds? Well, I'm not that? sure I've ever gone through an emotional journey with someone where they started. I'm not even close to being a designer and ended up as a total expert designer. Mm -hmm. 
uh, oh, really? because that's a much longer journey than just the game thinking techniques. Mm. Game thinking is a part of it, learning how to be a designer. It's not everything. It's a huge part, and it's in particular very cross-functional, which I brought up earlier. Many designers don't really learn cross-functional skills, and game thinking embraces strategy. It teaches you cutting-edge research skills, mm -hmm. and it teaches you uh, playtesting skills, and many designers don't really do those, but um, now they're able to do it on their own or work with much better with a cross-functional team. So, but... Um, I, what I've seen uh, is I've seen people that have one kind of very limited design skill broaden greatly. Um, one of our recent students was a visual designer and had been an animator and really wanted to be a product designer and just didn't know how. Studied game thinking for six months, got a job as a product designer at 30K above what she thought she would. That's game awesome. thinking is not the only thing that helped her, but it's a big part mm -hmm. of it. And so for someone like that, she was also, she worked hard, she did the work, but she had somewhat, but she had somewhat of a background, right? But she also had to unlearn a lot of visual design things because visual design is really about getting it right, not roughly iterating towards success. So she had a lot to learn there, but she learned a lot. And then, I mean, you saw Chris Swain, who's a very mm -hmm. experienced game designer, but has never done this kind of work struggle, you know, with the storyboarding work and emerge triumphant and learn hugely valuable things from testing his storyboards. And so that was an example of a very experienced designer who built up a really key modern skill that he didn't have by doing this. Um, and then I've also, like, I have worked with engineers, Mm -hmm. um, but I haven't ever seen an engineer with no real design experience or background turn into an expert designer. Mm -hmm. um, I just think there's there's more depth. But I think if you've worked, like I've seen a lot of PMs become better designers for sure. Yeah. The well, one thing about saying one Chris, you could tell that he had an artistic Hollywood background where you saw the things that he was producing was like highly polished out the gate even when it wasn't necessarily needed to be um right. and you could see him kind of go backwards and go oh let me let me actually step take a step back and and dumb down the fidelity but increase the overall experience of the uh the end user for them to go through it so that was really cool to watch him on his journey uh go through that you touch on a really interesting point because uh for like engineers um, it's, it's really clear a lot of the positions of what an engineer is. I'm a, I'm a gameplay programmer. I'm a systems engineer. I'm a networking programmer. What, what things I be for a designer? Um, there's, there's, it's kind of amorphous and kind of a broad stroke. When you say I'm a designer, it's like there, there's, there's uh, behavioral design. There is systems design. There's all these kind of different um, areas of designer that that is a, kind of a bit more, um, I would say. Uh, gray could you have just top of mind what you could say buckets of different types of designers just for clarity's sake not really i mean everybody buckets it different ways mm. i think the term behavioral designer is kind of bizarre but i know that a lot of people are behavioral designers mm -hmm. but they never address anything that is like a mastery path or identity and transformation you know at at a higher level it's always like about the behavior. Um, so I think that 
there's lots of kinds of design and what you need is depends on what you, um, you know, what the project needs. There's some really common, obvious things like visual design, which mm. is color and layout and gestalt and proportion and, you know, all that stuff. But it also gets into communicating impact, which mm. many design visual designers can't do. Um, game design, product design, there's overlap. Um, within game design, there's lots and lots of different kinds of designers, level designers, combat designers, mm -hmm. uh, different kinds of system designers, um, all kinds of art people. Those projects tend to have multiple kinds of designers on them. But somebody has to like oversee the vision of the whole thing mm. um, or else it goes to shit. So there's like a lead game designer. And similarly on many products, often there isn't a lead product designer. That's often missing. But on really good products or apps, there's somebody who really holds the vision. And, you know, there might be UX designers and um, visual designers and, you know, front end designers making it work with specific things. And it just how many, how you slice it, how many roles someone plays depends on the size of the team. Yeah. But, um, like I don't have just a taxonomy. I think there's lots of different taxonomies. Sure. But one of the key things that I think is useful as if somebody is thinking about, am I a designer, am I an artist, what is it? Um, the artist's core feedback loop is really with themselves and with their own self-expression. Does this express what I'm trying to say? That's really what art is fundamentally about. And the designer's feedback loop is not, does this express what I wanted to say? then you're acting like an artist. The designer's feedback loop is, does this do what it needs to do for my customer, for my user, for my player? Yeah. Does this delight them? Does this take them on the journey? Does it do the, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's a very different, uh, it's a different feedback loop for making decisions. And I've seen a lot of young people mistake people critiquing their designs for, you know, attacking their art. And those are some of the things that visual designers have to unlearn. It's like critique and rough prototyping and iteration is means that things are going well, mm. <laughs> not that you felt. It means things are going well. I have people I coach that, you know, I critique them and they get all sad. I'm like, I wouldn't even bother to critique you if I didn't think what you did was great. Yeah. You know, buck up, buckaroo. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, there's two things on that one uh, what it makes me think of it's very much like a comedian can't write a joke in a vacuum you can like write what you think it's going to work with the crowd but you need to test it on the crowd to really get that does this joke land you you can you can knock it up all day long but you're not a real quote-unquote comedian unless you actually have a crowd to bang that against to see does this land um which is which is one thing which it seems like the designer needs that the design you're designing for somebody versus designing for yourself and um, one of the things I I, uh, I love when working with you and seeing you use your tools, because it's one thing to watch. It's one thing for me to use the tools or read the book and try to apply it. It's another thing to do in a group. It's another thing to watch someone who's created the tools actually use them and go through the process. But the way that you receive feedback where someone goes, that's wrong. And you're like, great, tell me what's right. <laughs> and to me, that is very powerful because there is this when you – are starting out you have this your you your identity is attached to what you make and so if someone insults the product or that design they insult your identity which is that because you don't have that versus I, I think you've gone through enough projects in your day which i don't even know how many projects that would be but where if someone is insulting the design it you you have a clear like 
definitive line where like there is no emotional attachment to you to your design you just you just you have a very strong um mental model with not being attached to that and so oh yeah because it gets better work i mean i am a hundred percent aligned and focused on better work ego mm. means nothing and i've just learned it over time it's been beaten out of me but you're right it's something that you it, it's a sign of a much more mature designer a much more mm. senior designer it's not <laughs> having that attachment it's been beaten out of me man that's uh well, i mean i mean in some ways partly just mm. i mean user testing is brutal mm. user testing is brutal and i love it but you know i get so excited about something show it to people they're like you know it's, it's brutal that's what i mean i don't mean that like people hurt me i feel like through testing it's been like there's just nothing like it it is how you make great stuff it's it's forged to the fire of the opinion of others and 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 there's lots of opinions that that so lots of forging going on i just i've seen your response to you know what someone might take as i you could be defensive to the criticism, but you're like, okay, now we're going to iterate that and we're going to iterate that model and, and go from there. Is that it, it, along the path of people leveling up or up leveling in their, in the world of design, what are those, what are those threshold guardians? What are those things like, like taking it personal that prevents people from becoming a better designer on the path? Well, I think some of it is the way that a lot of, us bright folks have been shaped, you know, by the way we were raised and by school to get the right answer. I think that even if we're not aware of it, mm. you know, especially people that, you know, are working in tech and gaming and product, a lot of them did well in school, not all, but quite a few of them. And um, that really shapes you in so many ways to get the right answer. And I think unlearning that, uh, friend of mine, Barry O'Reilly, I published a video of his recently. He wrote a book called Unlearning and he works with execs at big companies, but it's really the same uh, point of view. It's unlearning that your goal here is to get the right answer. At some point you have to ship a product and you want it to be the right product for the right people. But early in development, you have to unlearn that success means getting the right answer and that you came up with the idea and you have to get really excited about the opportunity to find out what's right and what's wrong. And it, you, by doing that, you're really dissolving your ego boundaries because what I've learned just going from a, you know, very rough around the edges, smart and promising, but you know, you know, obnoxious younger person, I, believe me, I know, like I've been told many times <laughs> when I was a young designer, I thought these were the shit, you know, I was mm. just like, I was that person. I'm so empathetic to people like that. And then user testing, you know, at first I didn't want to do it, but then I started to see what would happen. And I started to realize that not at all what mattered was my ideas. What mattered was, first of all, our ideas. And so I am famous for running team meetings where nobody can remember whose idea it was because we don't care. And so that's part of it is you just decide and you lead anybody you work with, you lead toward R. Like, I don't remember it. Like, let's just find out who knows if it's the right idea. Let's find out through testing. But um, 
being able to dissolve your ego boundaries that way. And, and it does come when you've accomplished more and you have confidence, right? You know, I think there's anxiety when you're younger, you're proving yourself, but then realizing that, that it's about us. It's not about me. The, the, the best meetings are where nobody remembers whose idea it was. And then realizing that you're going to be wrong half the time, you know, working with Will Wright and see and running testing on his ideas and seeing he was wrong half the time. Wow. And it's like, that's how we did it. You know, it's like, it's not about being right. It's about having interesting testable ideas and a process to find the best ones. And wow. so getting to work with, you know, like world famous people and peek behind the curtain and see it's not about them being right. It's about testing your way to this cool thing. That really shook me. And that really showed me how powerful that was. And that's why I do what I do to bring that to other people. That's powerful. Uh, on that note. So that's, that's fantastic. And that, that says a lot about the, the system designs and uh, how to run team meetings and, and really create the, the right aligned group mental models so that we understand the, the, it's not about us. It's about the final product and the, and the collaboration that goes into it on the opposite side of that. How do you get people that you're because one of the uh, one of the challenges you have is oh it's my idea my idea is better than your idea or your idea is better than my idea i'm i'm great you're terrible you're great i'm terrible and that that thing on the on the internal side externally speaking and actually talking to customers or potential customers one of the big um challenges i've seen in any of the space in any of the products no matter what it's been is getting a customer or a potential customer to crap all over your product with, instead of them just smiling and go, this is great. I just want this uncomfortable situation to be over. So how, how do you encourage that behavior? How do you get that? How do you tease it out of them? What is I never get into those situations because I don't develop products and then show it to a customer. Like mm. I, I, the, in our accelerator, we take clients through this process. So I've set up my business so I literally don't run into that. I, I, any client who would like, it just, that's not what we do. We don't so, like, you know, develop ideas for clients and then pitch them to the clients or present them to the clients. I mean, I do have clients, the thing I do run into. So because of the kind of work we do, it, we're, mm -hmm. we're developing these things together. It just never, mm -hmm. it, there's never that unveil. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, what I do run into is that when a client has a particular idea, and I'll, a lot of times what I do is help the client bring their idea to life in a smart way. Mm. And so the client has a particular idea, bring it to, you know, bring it to life, do storyboards, pull in the right people, and then do that brutal play testing. Sometimes the client gets very upset because uh -huh. they watch people crap on their idea. So mm. it's never about like them crapping on my idea, but sometimes I lead them right to the point where they're watching somebody crap on their idea. And that person's been extremely carefully selected to be exactly the right person to test. And so that's hard. Mm. And so sometimes the client, uh, in most of the situations I'm in, because it does come up, I'm able to walk the client over the burning coals to the other side and see the positives and get a lot out of it. Sometimes it goes sideways and the client freaks out. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I was thinking of is uh, the uh, the way that you craft the the experience is it it creates a lot of room for them to to kind of air the communications and the the people that you're testing on 
those those end users, those testing people. Um, sometimes I've seen the the end users testing to 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 not be completely forthright. Uh, it doesn't happen as much as what you're talking about in these early early stages of this is a this is this is rough crap all over it. Um, but I was always yeah, just curious. Part, well, that's part of why you want to not show super polished stuff because it's much less likely they'll crap all over it. Mm. That's yeah, that's, but you know, it's, it's just, those things are always hard. And what I've seen is that the very best entrepreneurs care more about market truth than their ego and that I can partner with them and walk over the coals and help them get to the other side where they're now informed by market truth. And there, it's not that their ego has to go away because entrepreneurs need ego and vision. No. It's that it has to be uh, informed by market truth. And mm -hmm. I, and honestly, it's like the, the people I deal with whose egos are bigger than market truth, who freak out, who like, I mean, I have clients I have not spoken to after a bad play test. Like literally, I haven't spoken to them after that. Um, I understand, I empathize. Mm. I'm not going to try and fix it or save them because what I know is that that's not what the best entrepreneurs do. And my work is to help somebody rise up to be the best entrepreneur they can. Yeah. Market truth over ego. That is so powerful. And a lot of that is of a real entrepreneur is someone who is of service to their community. You know, they're of service to the I'm here to create something of value to you so that I can be a better entrepreneur and, and create a better product, create a better company and all that. And uh, that's really, really powerful. Just when you're younger starting out, the there's sometimes that identity of uh, not worthy or whatever it might be that, that you have that over attachment. So I think that's a really powerful lesson to know is market truth over ego and something that you have to get enough reps in it's huge and it never gets easy. That's the other thing is if it seems like it's really hard, then you're doing it right. <laughs> what do you, uh, with, I mean, with game thinking, with the communities, with everything that you're doing, that you're building up right now, do you have uh, uh, end goal? Do you have a holy grail? Do you have what you ultimately, you know, want this uh, ecosystem to be? Well, we want to save millions of entrepreneurs billions of hours of time so the the most precious economy um that there is is time ultimately what game thinking delivers to people is it saves them you know eight to 12 months of time um on a project when they go deep and use it so that's what we're all about and um so if anybody's interested you can go to gamethinking.io find our book, find our programs, and explore um, how this process can help you save time. Fantastic, Amy Jo, this has been wonderful. Um, thank you for, so much for that. Um, any last questions or any last, any last words of wisdom that you'd like to, to leave the people with before we, uh, we wrap this up? No, I, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much, Amy Jo. I really appreciate your time. Have a beautiful day and I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening.
See you on the other side.